going by train is the greenest, most sustainable way you can get pretty much anywhere. We own and operate 21,000 miles of railway track across the UK and everything that goes with that. So all of the assets around that. So we're a very big engineering intensive, asset focused, extremely complex organization. The mark of a great CIO is 10 years in the future, how many people who worked for them are now CIOs. If it's none, that's not a good sign they did a good job. I want to be challenged. I want to do something that's just interesting. Because if you do something that bores you, you'll probably end up being a boring person. If you do interesting things, you'll be an interesting person. This is Sierra TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Aidan Hancock, who is the Group Chief Information Officer at Network Rail in the UK. A very warm welcome, Aidan. Uh, and thank you. Um, thanks for having me, Hendrik. Aidan, you studied modern history at the uh, St. John's College in Oxford, and you started your career in the IT of the uh, NHS. You worked in broadcast media, a set of networks, before joining BP as an IT director, where you worked, among other places, for 18 months in Iraq. Uh, and since the beginning of 2019, you are the Group CIO at UK Network Rail. So, Aidan, tell us a bit more about your background and how the hell does a histor historian <laughs> arrive in the position of a CIO? Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a normal background, it's not a normal path, although I did meet someone else who used to be a CIO uh, who, who also studied history. So. The, the, the easy answer is it makes for a very well-rounded human being, right? <laughs> Knowledge of history. We all need to understand yeah. and, and know about history. But the, the better answer is I was always fascinated by computers. I always had computers when I was growing up as a child. I always messed around. I coded. I did, you know, I coded in assembler. I coded in basic. I did a lot of this stuff. So that's what always fascinated me. And then my original career plan was I was going to be a lawyer. And I kind of okay. realized when I got to university, that wasn't for me. That's not what I want to do. And I think that was the right choice. I wouldn't have enjoyed it. Um, and then that meant, well, what shall I do? So uh, I joined the NHS uh, in IT because that's what I thought I wanted to do. Turned out it was a good choice. Good choice. Um, and so that's how I've ended up here. And then, yep, it's been an interesting career, um, kind of. You know, I'm not afraid of a challenge, I guess I could say. Tell us, tell us a bit about your, uh, your time in uh, Iraq. That must have been quite an adventure, no? It was, I think, and probably only partly for the reasons everyone thinks. Everyone thinks Iraq, mm -hmm. oh, the war, the danger, the terrorism, all of that. And then that, that's true. But that doesn't, doesn't mean I'm a very brave person. I was personally in danger. I wasn't at all. The question um, when I worked for BP in Iraq was, not is there risk, it's how do you manage the risk. And of course, we managed the risk exceptionally well. Um, but it was fascinating. What was, what was most interesting about being out there was you had to go there for weeks at a time. Yeah, we we're all there. So you were kind of living with people you worked with. There was a real sense of drive and passion because it was kind of reconstructing, the, in this case, the Romela oil field, which is the world's second largest oil field reconstructing it after, you know, decades of war, sanctions and difficulty. And yeah, Romela at the time, I think this is probably still true, I haven't checked in the last few years, was over half of Iraq's gross domestic product. So wow. hugely economically important and taking production from, I think, around about half a million barrels a day to about one and a half million barrels a day. Um, and that's, that's an awful lot of oil, you know. And and it was the fact that it was a shared experience and it was a social environment and we were all in it together. And there was this collective vision that we were doing something of value and we were really, really helping the country of Iraq. It's a great, great experience, great experience. Okay, thank you for sharing that. So today you work at Network Rail. For those of us outside of the UK, tell us a little bit, this organization, Network Rail, what is it that it uh, does today? 
So uh, the very short answer is 45,000-ish employees. We own and operate 21,000 miles of, of railway track across the UK and everything that goes with that. So all of the assets around that. So we're a very big engineering intensive, asset focused, extremely complex, very large scale organization. Hopefully that okay. sort of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so what are the drivers of change today? Because we're all, all organizations are going through faster and faster change. What is driving uh, network rail today? So the, the, the answer up until a month or so ago was we need to do more with data. I'm not going to say data is the new oil and all of that stuff. We've all heard plenty of that. But we have vast, vast pools, vast lakes of data. And we all know, right, every company is largely in the same boat. We're not doing enough. We're not generating enough insight from that. So that, that's always the underlying plan. And that's, that's the way we're, we're constantly moving. But around about a month ago, um, the UK government published a white paper uh, with its intentions to reform the railway industry here. And so what we've always had is uh, a publicly owned infrastructure operator, which is ourselves, Network Rail, and then privately owned train operating companies and others who, who run the trains and take the passengers and have the passenger interface. And what the white paper is seeking to do is bring all of that together. You still have public ownership and private um, enterprise, but we're bringing it all together to make it simpler to make it a better experience for the passenger, to drive out cost, because we've ended up being quite a complex business um, as an industry. So that is now the big driver for change. And then you add in, uh, COVID hasn't been very friendly to rail, particularly commuter rail. Um, so passenger numbers are still down probably around 50%-ish wow. of what they were pre-COVID, mm -hmm. particularly in commuter markets. I don't know about you, Hendrik, but, but before COVID, I was commuting into London three or four days a week. And then the other couple of days I was at, at other sites. I haven't done much of that in the last 16 months. Um, I was in last week, but none of us really sees the future of the workplace being the same, right? We know this, us CIOs like to talk about this and think about the ramifications. So what does that mean for the future of rail? Well, it needs, it needs to be more efficient, it needs to be simpler, but also probably focus on things like freight, and long distance travel, which tends to be more for leisure or for other reasons. And that commuter market, it'll come back, but to what level exactly, uh, I don't know, no one knows. Okay, so let's talk about the, maybe the consolidation program first, because that's a, that's a, a huge program, I, I can imagine, bringing different organizations back together and, and, and on the IT side, selecting the right uh, platforms, integrating these systems and so on. So what's the, what's the plan and the vision uh, for that? It's early days, very early days. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I am helping out with the thinking as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, I'd very much like to see the future Great British Railways, that's, that's the name, I'd like to see I'd like to see GBR digital from day one. Um, I'd like the culture to be digital, whatever, whatever that means. And, you know, we can all talk for a long time about that. But you know, it's, a, it's those opportunities you don't see that often in very large businesses to simply say, well, in three years time, we won't be able to do it the way we did it before. That structure won't exist. So how can we build afresh? How will it be new? Then you've got all the, all the questions which we're only just starting to ask ourselves, not just me, but across, across the industry, you know, the various other CIOs and say, how would you consolidate? What should we consolidate? And, you know, I think most of us know um, yeah, a single, yeah, if you look at a, a, a classic ERP type platform, if you say, I've got five or six of these and we could do with it just being one. That's a monumentally big piece of work. We all know that. So all of these factors come in. But the one I'm most excited about is the chance to have a step change in the culture, to be digitally native, to be digital from day one. That's, I think, the big goal for me. Okay. So you look at it as kind of an opportunity to almost start with a, with a clean sheet, with a fresh start, and, and build from a new culture, a new strategy, and, and, and uh, new systems and so on. And, and 
I'd like it all to be new systems, but you know, <laughs> is there the money for that? I mean, I'm running 13, 1400 applications, some of them very, very big, very complex. Uh, yeah, but there are various models. I would like to try and find a way. I doubt, we'll, I doubt we'll be able to replace everything. We'll need a strategy to replace all the things that need replacing, just mm-hmm. like we already have a strategy for that in network rail, but this will be wider and industry-wide. Um, we'll need a strategy to bring in the new platforms and new ways of working, which again, we already have and we're already doing and we need to do more of. Uh, but I'd like to think that along with the strategy, we can leave some of the legacy behind, whether you ring fence it or you abstract it away, um, but the new company should have a kind of clean sheet to start from, right? How okay. we do that, I don't know. It's just too early to say. Okay, but exciting times for that, no? Uh, I mean, very exciting. <laughs> big opportunity. Very yeah. exciting. So let's talk a, a bit about what you have been focusing on for the last couple of years. You said, well, the, the, there's a big challenge or a, a big program to become more data-driven and to get more insights out of data. Let's focus a bit on that. What, what is the, what, where, where are you in, in the, let's say, date, digital data maturity level of how much you uh, already get, how much insights do you already get out of your data? Where are you on this journey? I think the quick answer would be to say, maybe about halfway there, but I, I don't know, right? Because the journey never ends. We're mm-hmm. doing okay, but we need to do more. You know, in some areas we're probably leading. Um, we've mm-hmm. done some great things with, with, with machine learning, and particularly around machine vision um, recently. Uh, and in some areas we're probably lagging. In some areas we're really generating some amazing insights for decision mm-hmm. support um, for, our, for our people. In other areas we're probably still a little bit more in the old-fashioned business intelligence kind of MI space. Um, mm-hmm. A, yeah, if, if I was to give you an example, of yes, a, a couple of examples. So uh, we have a program called uh, Intelligent Infrastructure, which is about a 200 million pound program, which is in essence, putting the IoT sensors out pretty much everywhere. Anything you can measure, you can look at track integrity. You know, is something wearing? Is, it, is the geometry going out of line? You can look at the integrity of some of the supporting assets around the railway. So, you know, the embankments, the bridges and so on. Um, things that we have to maintain because we've got to keep them safe to use uh, and they have mm-hmm. to stay being usable. Um, what we need to do is to be able to give people the tools to prioritize how they maintain these things. And we, we haven't done enough of that. Most companies haven't. And there's always more to do. So intelligent infrastructure has really been around putting new tools so far into the hands of the people who have to do the work and giving them insight into things. It's not just a slightly different view of something. It's a wholly new way of looking at things. So that before where, for example, we may have had to maintain assets on a like a strict calendar basis. Now we can do it based on actual data, which tells us that's going to need attention. And that's a priority because if we take it a step further, you'll have a prioritized list of things. These things are going to need attention in the next six months, which would cause us the biggest impact, which are the biggest potential safety risks. And then you can then do a further stage of prioritization. So those tools are in our people's hands. That program's a five-year program. It's running for another three years. The benefits, the financial benefits alone are in, in excess of 100 million a year um, wow. because we can be so much more efficient and so much more targeted. But there's some other great benefits as well um, around it simply makes people's working lives better, right? And mm-hmm. that's a good thing to do. It gives people more modern tools. And I won't talk too long, but I think we've all thought the CIOs, you know, some of the older tools we used to put out there at the start of my career and even 10, 15 years ago, they weren't pleasant to use because our vendors and suppliers didn't think like that. So we're giving things um, to people which should delight them. Um, I'll give you one other example, Um, managing vegetation on the track. So overhanging trees, bushes, big, big, big thing we need to do because you can't have trees hanging over the line. Trains will hit them. And there's, you know, 20 plus thousand trains running every day in the UK. Um, So how we, uh, do that now is we have just gone to minimum viable product of a new tool around line side inspection, which takes forward facing video, which all the trains on the network film, high definition, 
And then we run machine vision, machine learning algorithms against that, which then categorize at scale the not just the nature of is it, go, is it encroaching, but also what type of tree is that? What type of vegetation? Is it prone to disease? So we have a big problem with ash trees at the moment because they can suddenly die back. If so, does it look like it'll be dying back anytime soon? So we've got to bump it up the priority list. Um, all those things come into this. And this is not something we've ever had before. So that's only the first phase. And already the maintenance people are really excited about that because it's using data we were collecting for other purposes and it's making extreme use of it. There's other parts of that program as well, using LiDAR to map environments from iPads and so on. Fantastic, but it just gives a little flavor, I hope, Hendrik. Okay, so there's a camera on, on the nose of every train nowadays then? There is, there is. Okay. There is, well, you need, you need it there for compliance. Something happens on the track, if there, God help us, is an accident, something, you need that video because you need to see what happened. So we've always okay. had it there or had it there for a long time for that. Um, but of course, we can make fantastic use of it. And then you can do other things, not just vegetation. You know, where uh, the lines are mostly electrified, you can look with the right uh, machine learning algorithms, with the right models in place. You can look at the overhead wires and the equipment that holds them in place, and you can start to spot that's going to go soon. So we'll get out and fix that before it does go. Because of course, as we all know, an unplanned outage in a very big, complex real-time network can, can yeah. cause big problems. Okay, so you almost have like a real-time network view, like you have a street view. Uh, on now we can have Google Street View. You have a, 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 a rail view, but then almost like in real time. Almost, almost. Would you say, yeah, almost, yeah. Would you say that you are kind of building a digital twin on top of the, of, of, of the network as well? Yeah, I mean, in, in bits and pieces, because it's such a vast thing, it's not, and I think this is the right way. It's not like we've gone out to say, we need a digital twin of the entire rail network because it's too big. You wouldn't know where to start. Okay. But if you start by looking at vegetation, then you look at overlaid line equipment, there's been a lot of work done around, again, around machine vision recognition of other line side assets. So electrical substations or switching boxes or points or whatever. You start to have all the components and of course, mm -hmm. given we have standard platforms sitting there in the cloud behind this, standard tools, standard methods, we start to build bit by bit by bit that digital twin until it comes to life. Okay. So doing more with data, a big consolidation program coming up, and then the impact of, of, of the pandemic and, uh, I mean, the, the, the dramatic reduction of the number of passengers is um, quite a lot of things are changing uh, in your organization. A lot of change, a yeah. lot of change. So let's talk a little bit about your IT organization. Can you give us some numbers? How big is it and how is it organized? Yeah, so um, I have around 700 people in, in, in IT. And then the supply chain, if you to add it up, is probably a similar number again. So it's a, it's a, bit, it's a big organization. We historically, um, have always been quite centralized, right? IT has been a central delivery function. However, we have devolved our business units lately. So we have five operating regions and, and they are wholly responsible for their own P&L. And what I, I welcome and I'm actively encouraging is more and more digital. So the high value intimate with the business delivery to be initiated and done within those operating regions. Of course, we set the standards, we set the guardrails, they need to use the right platforms, we need to secure it, all of that stuff, all of the non-functional requirements. But I really want, you know, I love, I love working in digital products. I love the direct day-to-day -day involvement of the people who will use those products and derive the value from them, because that's where we get the best benefit, rather than that kind of old-fashioned model that we all know and probably don't love that much, which is business talks to us once at the start of a project, and then they complain at the end that we didn't quite deliver what they wanted. This is different, right? This is real time. So that's, that's pretty much how IT is structured at the moment. Okay. So that means that IT is becoming, and, and the organization has to become, but also IT is a driver, I can imagine, in becoming more an agile organization and working in more agile ways. So let's talk a little bit about that journey, uh, because I can imagine that 
uh, network rail being very engineering driven, very conservative, a very old organization has been around for centuries. So how do you make a change? How can you implement modern agile ways of working in a, in let's say a conservative organization like network rail? What a question. Um, <laughs> So one of, the, one of the early things I did when I joined is I set up a, a digital factory, which is, which, is the, which is the inherently agile delivery part of IT. You know, it's mm -hmm. the Scrum, it's the Kanban, it's all, all of the buzz phrases. But what that was designed to do is one, designed to scale, um, and, and demand has kind of outstripped our, our ability to supply with, with, with the resources we've got. And it's a fairly big organization. Um, but it was designed to give people insight and experience of working in a different way, rather than a very traditional waterfall. Here we go. It was the agile, iterative, daily stand-up type way of working. And then the real intention of the digital factory was to hack the culture from the inside to say, well, of course, this is how we want to do things. And, and, and we get this. We get this from customers who've been through it. They say, well, that's what I want to do. I don't want to work any other way. I don't want to wait. You know, the digital factory, we've got around about a 10-week delivery time from someone turns up with an idea to a minimum viable product. So that's that's pretty good going, I think. And we go through yeah. a, you know, a few sprint cycles in that. And and that starts to seed people's thinking. And, and yet we are. We are conservative and we are a bit old-fashioned and it is engineering heavy, exactly like BP. So I, I seem to choose these companies at the moment. Um, <laughs> But that's not a bad thing because, of course, we're safety critical, just like BP was safety critical. We have to do things cautiously. But what, we, what we're now learning and what the digital factory has helped us to learn and the work around data science and so on is we can, we can still be safe and we can still do things in a smart way, but we can do them much faster and in a much more enjoyable way and mm -hmm. delivering value far more quickly. So that's kind of where we are. Um, and I think it's going well. It never goes fast enough for me, but I'm, I'm impatient. You know, I'm always impatient. Never goes fast enough for anyone. But, you know, the executive team, fully supportive. Our CEO, he fully gets this, right? You know, and we, like most organizations, we've had a history of digital changes brought through giant programs. And, and yeah. we don't do that anymore. We, we really don't want to do that anymore. Even if there's an umbrella program wrapper around something, it's yeah. done as agile within that. Yeah, the individual components are agile. Now, I can imagine that it will take two, three, four years before the complete organization, the complete IT organization, at least is, 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 is fully digital. So is, is there a percentage that you could put on it where you are today? I say, well, 20% or 40% of my team is already working in, a, in an agile way and, and the rest are... are taking steps to, uh, to, to change? I'll be making up a number, but in all honesty, on a good day, it's probably 40 to 50%. On a bad day, we still fall back because it depends on the work bank we've got, depends on what's in the portfolio, depends on the customers. You know, some mm -hmm. customers may say, hey, you can't do that agile, we need to do it this way. And of course, some yeah. things are still better done in a conventional way. Um, one thing though uh, that was amazing to see, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only CIO who saw this, is the early days of COVID back in March last year. And we were preparing in advance and we had a lot of things in place. But what happened, because we had to deliver change, I mean, we had a company of 45,000 people with no real culture of working from home. A few people did, right? I've been working from home personally since the late 90s. That's just, you know, I've been lucky um, for now and again, not permanently, obviously. Uh, but we had no culture, so we had to shift that overnight. And what happened, this was the fascinating thing, because we automatically just relaxed the governance and relaxed the control, all the teams became agile just like that. Just without anyone having to tell them, it became the natural way of working. So we delivered that, that volume of change at the early stage of COVID where suddenly we, we shifted to around 20,000 people working at home, a lot of people working with Microsoft Teams as a good example, where they'd never used it before. And we now have 36,000 people using Teams every day. So it just, to me, shows that we, we are more agile than we think. And what we've learned from that is actually having cross-functional tiger teams, uh, as we call them and many people call them, but having these cross-functional teams constantly working 
delivers value better. So I'd say COVID's been a help there. It's not been a good thing for the world, not been a good thing in many ways, but there's a silver lining there in that it's helped us all to understand what Agile looks like. Everyone from the chief exec down to everybody. Okay. Let's talk a bit about your role. I mean, you started a couple of years uh, ago uh, in uh, Network Rail. What was the first thing that you had to focus on? What are you focusing on today? And how do you see your role evolving in the future? So I think every, every CIO, every, every chief anything, you got to have a 100-day plan. And I did, but I didn't talk about it. It was just kind of in my head. But you know, you, you got to get to grips with, are there any real major problems here? Um, and luckily there weren't, no, not really. There's a few things to fix. Um, the big thing for me was we're lacking enough of a digital component. We're lacking the agile part. We're talking about it, but we're not doing it. So those were the things, those were the big changes. Um, the way I've come to see the role, and largely I've, I've, this has been my view for a number of years, is Yes, I've got to get the technology right. Yes, I've got to have long-term cost control of, of everything we do. Yes, we need a well-architected, simplified landscape that is fit for the future. We need the standards. We need all of that stuff. We need to deliver everything we want, ever, anyone wants. But what I most think the role of the CIO is these days is we've ended up being right the center of the business. You, know, you go back even 10 years, it was a different era, uh, if we can remember it. We kind of, IT was you know, almost sat in the basement. And then as things became digital or wanting to become digital, as people started to realize the value of data, suddenly the spotlight was on us and we're kind of blinking. And of course, the CIO is quite unique in that we touch every part of a business, every single part. And we get to, our teams have to dive completely deep into it and understand that business process and the workflow. So who else is there to be at the center of cultural change, to be at the center of this kind of organizational change, especially given, and I'm thinking of a, a Gartner survey I read a couple of months ago, which was their annual CEO survey. What do you want to spend your money on? Where are you choosing to invest? Mm -hmm. 80 plus percent of CEOs putting more money into digital, more money into IT. So yeah. We're right at the heart of this. It's where the money is. It's where the value is. It's where the data is, right? This isn't to give, give us big heads. We don't need any bigger heads. We don't need to be more arrogant. But it's the, okay, you can go so far, but you then have to become a digital company. And how are we going to drive that? And, and, and so that's what I view the role as the, of the CIO as these days, different yeah. than it used to be. If you look at your weekly agenda, where do you spend most of your time or how do you divide your time between your teams, your colleagues uh, and, and clients? How does uh, a typical week for you look like? I bet the obvious answer that you get a lot is there's no typical week. They're yeah, all different. But, <laughs> but you know what? You know, there's a cycle. There's a four-week cycle of governance. So there's, there's, there's a chunk of governance that has to be done. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a fan of getting governance right. Not too much, not too little. Um, so, you know, in any given week, it's probably maybe 15, 20% of my time on governance. Probably at the moment, 40% of my time on, on future vision and strategy. Mm -hmm. um, I spend as much time as I possibly can talking to people. Um, making time for people, which is something something I learned from a previous boss, um, and how you do that. Um, and you know, there's there's the there's the age old role of the CIO, which is just making sure no one senior gets the wrong idea about anything. Because people, not everyone understands IT, not everyone understands where 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 things need to be done and how they are done. Mm -hmm. So you need to jump on these issues before before they become too big. Um, and then I guess another part of my, you know, another chunk, maybe 10% is just kind of absorbing and simplifying any, any information that sh could or should flow down into my organization. Because there's, there's, there's too much of that. We don't want to take people's time. So my role I see from uh, that perspective is to simply enable my people to do the best job they can and, and get out of their way and stop the noise, stop all of this noise cascading down on them, which is actually pretty good now. We, we slimmed right down in that. But 
just to allow them to do their jobs. Yeah. Now, in, in an engineering culture, do you have a, a big problem with shadow IT or is that something that's easily managed where you are now? It's not a big problem, right? I've seen worse. You know, the, my early days in BP, it was, it was, it was a lot worse. Um, it's, it's there, it's a problem, but it tends to be a problem not as in we've built this, uh, but now we don't know what to do with it. It comes earlier than that. It's the, we've been talking to a supplier, we've been talking to a consultancy, we've been talking to someone. And some of the time, this isn't deliberate. It's just they're talking about like a rail engineering solution or an oper operational technology solution, which has digital components. The digital yeah. components clearly have bigger ramifications than the non-IT professionals would necessarily see. And so it then becomes a, ah, oh, we need your help with this. Uh, to which my answer is, I wish you'd told me sooner. But that's actually, yeah. that's not bad, right? I have people out there in each region um, Pretty much we keep control of this. We know what's going on. And it's not to control it. It's just so that we can know and make sure the right choices are made and we don't miss the obvious things around. How are we going to secure it? How is it going to integrate with everything else? And my personal pet hatred is we've already got a system that does this. This Why are you doing it again? Oh, we didn't know. Or we wanted one in a different color or something. That I can't buy. <laughs> but we, do, we don't have a big problem. We don't. Yeah. So you said that one of the learnings that you had to grow through in your career was to, uh, to work with teams and, and, and to be stronger at, at that side. How would you describe nowadays your, your management style? How do you lead your teams? How do you make them successful? So I describe it as open, honest, transparent, authentic. Uh, I, I'm pretty down to earth and I'm pretty approachable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of leaders historically haven't been, right? You tend to think, I'm busy, I'm above this, I haven't got time. So one thing I learned early on is you've got to make time for people, even if it eats into your own time. And you've got to find ways to deal with that. So um, I like to think this is how people would view me uh, and describe me as, mm -hmm. you know, I'll make time for, for anyone uh, at pretty much any time. And if I don't know the answer, I'll say I don't know the answer. And if things are unclear, I'll say things are still unclear. Here's when I hope they become clear. And this is something I'm working on. But, you know, I think, and I think that's one of the other benefits of COVID is that has become more of a predominant leadership style, the kind of remote chief exec or chief whatever. I don't know, people don't really have much appetite for that anymore. I've never liked it. It's always felt a bit arrogant and standoffish to me. Um, so that's that's my style. And I think... For me, there's no other way I can do it. That's, that's, the, that's all I know. Um, but I think if, if people see that uh, and, and can kind of respond to it, it's more likely to bring everybody along, especially when we go through difficult times, because it's not all exciting. We've got difficult work to do. There's difficult yeah. choices sometimes. Um, you know, the industry has, has suffered during COVID. All of these things kind of create uncertainty for people. But I think it's a way, it's, for me, that's the way to bring people along with me for the ride. Okay. Let's talk a bit more about how you find the right people. And, and, and so let's talk about maybe your sourcing strategy and, and, and how easy or difficult it is to attract the right talent within your own teams. And how do you decide on what you keep in your own team and what you outsource to... Uh, to suppliers and, and outsourcing companies? It's a, it's a big question. Um, mm -hmm. We probably don't have all day, but it's... So the one thing about the railway is people mm -hmm. love the railway. Before I joined, okay. I mean, who, who doesn't like trains, right? Who doesn't, especially maybe in the UK, who doesn't have romantic notions of the kind of the, the heyday of the railways nearly 200 years ago, the Industrial Revolution, all of that, steam trains. So people love the railway, but also, and this is, I think, a big selling point, tr you know, going by train is the greenest, most sustainable way you can get pretty much anywhere. You know, I, I saw France has banned flights of less than three hours if you can yep. get there by train instead. So, you know, that, 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 I, think that, I think that's a smart thing to do. So you can attract people who are passionate about the environment, who are passionate about sustainability, and frankly, who are just interested in the railways. You can attract 
quite a lot of people that way, uh, which is good because I can't necessarily pay the top salaries, right? Very few of us can compete with the banks. But what we can offer is uh, a really flexible working environment. Um, you know, anyone in IT can work from wherever they like in their realm. That's just how it is. Um, yep. We can offer the vision of just imagine what the railways can be like. And with, with the recent white paper and the, the, the imminent advent of Great British Railways, just think what the future will be like. Yeah, the past is glorious. Just think what the future will be like. So there's that, that shared enterprise, shared vision. It's a big, big thing. Um, and other than that, you're then into the mundane world of, okay, uh, how are we going to get, I mean, how do you get data science resources? I mean, skilled resources. But then you're into the kind of micro strategy around that, which is, well, I want everyone to be a data scientist. Who doesn't, right? But not data scientists with a PhD, but able mm-hmm. to use the tools to some extent, right? So then we end up with a spectrum of things, which is actually as much about education of the wider business as it is around recruiting IT skills. Um, we take a lot of apprentices and graduates. Uh, I think I've got over a dozen at the moment. And, and their passion is fantastic. You know, they, they've studied computer science, you know, at school or at university. And they're passionate. They all want to be data scientists. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? But then there's a recognition that says, well, let's give them a great experience. Let's train them. Let's get them delivering value for us. But I can't expect to keep them for their whole career. They might do. But then some of them might go, hang on a minute, I can triple my salary going to work for a bank. So we've got to be realistic about these things. Um, and so, and, and I, think, I think we are. But fundamentally, it's around, this is a great place to work. It really yep. is, right? Put it all together and we pay well. Yep. You could go to a, a bank and you'd probably get paid more, but we pay very well. And we give you all the other things, all the benefits and the sense of purpose, right? So I think, I think that's, that's the big deal for me. Okay. And, and how do you decide on what do you want to keep inside the organization? And, and do you have a big outsourcing strategy? Is that a, is that so a thing? So we do. Uh, the easy answer is, we tend to outsource the things that are commodity, the things where I would expect a scale provider who does this for hundreds of companies. They should be able to do it better than us. That said, there's a constant need to monitor that and rebalance because you actually think, well, things that we're all happy to outsource, um, you know, look at data center operations and things like that. That's been a no-brainer for a long time. You actually think, how does that fit into an agile world? How does it fit? Now, it does fit, but you may need to kind of rebalance around the edges and say, actually, what we didn't consider core skills, there are some core skills in there. We may be a little bit light in one area or another. So there's a, and this is something we're looking at at the moment is, you know, do we need to rebalance? I don't think we do in any major way, but fundamentally, what I'd like is as much commodity as possible to be done by the best organization to do it. If that's us, fine, we'll step up and do it. But frequently that won't be us. That'll be others who do it at scale. What I do want is the, the high value activity and the, 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 the real deep knowledge into how does rail data fit together? How does that whole landscape, that systems landscape fit together? Those are the skills we, we, we need to keep and do more with. Okay. Network infrastructure, rail infrastructure is really critical infrastructure for society. So that also means that security is very important and, 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 and IT security, cyber security must be very, very important. Can you maybe um, feel us some of the, the, the strategies and the tricks that you have there to make sure that you keep your, your IT part of the infrastructure secure? Yeah, and it is. It is. It is really critical and I'm very wary, I'm not superstitious of saying we do a good job because that almost seems like when this video comes out, something will happen. And you almost think these days, you know, there's a there's a, a board level, I think growing growing way of thinking, which is these ransomware attacks, it's not if it'll happen to us, it will happen it's to when. us. How, how how will we respond? How will we recover? So the thing we do well, and I've got a great CISO and we do a really, really uh, great job here. The thing we do well is we're linked into the wider ecosystem. So because we're critical national infrastructure, we're linked into the intelligence services. 
We're linked into the British Transport Police. We're li- and, and, and we, we play a major role as we all increasingly mature in that. Um, and, and that, I think, is the key, right? Everything else, it's everything you'd expect. We've got a secure operations center. We've got very hardened environment, right? Our corporate network environment is as locked down as it can be before it becomes inconvenient, right? We've done a particularly good job there. Uh, we've, we've mitigated legacy challenges because, you know, that's not, not a great thing to have hanging around the estate. So none of this is tips and tricks. The, 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 the big trick, I think, is working within that wider society-wide ecosystem okay. so that we can respond. That also includes our suppliers as well. I think we're doing particularly well. And we've been hit um, you know, with a couple of things. Not bad, right? We caught them before anything happened, like, like, every, like it's happened to probably most people. And, and it was the classic defense in depth, right? If you don't catch them here, you catch them here, or you catch them here. We catch them. And you know, our suppliers have been great. Even with zero days, the response has been incredibly rapid. And I think that's, that's increasingly the thing, is the importance of it's going to happen What's your playbook? What's your game plan? How are you going to respond to this as a business, right? As a business-wide yep. thing. So there's good, and there's great support as well from our CEO and our board um, for, for, for all things cyber. Okay. Let's talk a bit more about, about you as a, as, as a leader and uh, of, of this organization. And uh, so maybe we can start with what is it that really drives you? If we look back at you worked at BP and, and several other companies and now in, in, uh, in this critical infrastructure organization, what is that really drives you? When at the end of the week or the month are you really, really happy? So I looked back on my career, I don't know, six, seven years ago, because it's hard, right? Sometimes you can't detect a theme. And the theme mm-hmm. for me is quite, quite obvious is I want to be challenged. I want to do something that's just interesting. And I want it to be of some value, right? To the business, to society, to the people doing it, um, to customers. And that's fundamentally it, because clearly I took a history degree and ended up a CIO of the UK um, Network Rail. But it's all around the challenge, right? Why, what, why did I go to BP? Because it was a global scale. Why did I go to the Middle East and to Iraq? Because it was a, cha- a challenge to you know, help rebuild a country, to do something enormous, you know, really and vast in scale in every respect. Why did I come to Network Rail? Uh, in all honesty, if I put my hand up, I would like to play a little part, a digital part for a few years while I'm here, um, to make the trains run on time. So you could actually, when I'm old and retired, if I could point to a chart and there's a small upward tick and it's sustained and I could say, yeah, that was, that was me. That was the systems. That was the things we did. That was the different ways of working. So that's, that's what I want, right? That's, that's what drives me. Something interesting. Okay, Aidan, let's talk about your personality a bit more. You've uh, shared uh, with us your uh, Myers-Briggs type uh, personality type that we use as a common thread in all our leadership deep dive interviews. And you are an ENTJ also known as a commander. And an ENTJ is extroverted, intuitive, a thinking, and a judging personality. And these are typically decisive people who love momentum and accomplishment. And we already talked about that a little bit. And they gather information to construct their creative visions, but rarely hesitate for long before acting on them. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, uh, it does sound like me. It really does. Okay. Let me describe the, uh, the strengths of, uh, of, of your personality type. I mean, commanders, ENTJs are typically efficient. They're energetic, self-confident, strong, strong-willed. They're strategic thinkers and they're charismatic and inspiring. Does that tick the box for you? It does. It does. Um, I get very passionate about things. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of patience. I want to get on to the next exciting thing because you can see it. I can see the value it's going to deliver, how it'll transform things. That's what I want to be doing. So yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree with that assessment. Absolutely. But you, 
And, and I can see that you love the strategic thinking, right? You love to see where you can take an organization as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, you know, probably the bit I enjoyed the most, right? It's just mm -hmm. fascinating when you think, especially when there's an opportunity, you think, oh, yeah, we could do this. And there's always an opportunity, even if you have to kind of come in from the bottom or go in from the side. Um, yep. That's a big part. I don't know how they do these personality tests because they always manage to nail it, but, but there you go. There you go. I do think, um, you know, we change a bit over time. We probably become a bit more pronounced in, in, mm -hmm. in our personality type with the traits you just listed as you build confidence and experience. It's like, oh, okay. Because, you know, I was an ENTJ. I remember the first one of these I had then was more than 20 years ago, something like that. Um, and it was the same, obviously, but I think the scores, if you look at the individual dimensions, they've all got stronger and more extreme, which is probably <laughs> mostly a good thing, but may not be entirely a good thing. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the other side of the coin and, and let's talk about potential weaknesses of people with your personality type. And so the uh, commanders, ENTJs, are sometimes stubborn, dominant. They can be intolerant, impatient. They can be arrogant poor handling of emotion, and cold and ruthless. So <laughs> all these weaknesses, where do you recognize your, maybe your previous self? And, or let's well say, well, in which of these domains have you evolved and developed yourself? Yeah, and I can see in retrospect, yeah. arrogance undoubtedly, right? And a big ego, which, which <laughs> I, which I, you know, I don't think I'm arrogant anymore, but mm -hmm. you don't know what people perceive you as. Sometimes they might think that simply because, I don't know, you know you, you maybe, maybe you didn't answer a question or maybe you look like you didn't want to answer a question. It becomes tougher the more senior you mm -hmm. become because you're out in public more often. Um, but I think those are much better under control. Impatience, that's never going to go away, right? I'm always impatient. You know, I want something, I want it now. That's, that's, and that's just a trait. I'm not sure that's, it's a bad one, but what I think I need to guard against is being too headstrong, being too impatient, being too driving for the change. There's a lot of people who aren't like that. And to, to, to someone with this personality type, it's hard to actually understand that, but you have to as a leader because you know, my tendency, especially in the past, and I still do it a bit now, is just say, well, this is great. It's all going to be changed. So there we go. That's, let's look forward to that. Let's get on with it. And other people, they react in different ways. Some people take a long time to come around to it. Yeah. And we need to bring everyone along for the ride. But all that said, I'm still impatient, right? We don't have time to wait for everybody. We've got to wait for most people. So I, I agree, right? And, you know, some of that, I... I I don't know how bad I've been because, you know, underneath it, I started out kind of relatively technical and I was kind of a, not a humble techie because I was never really that because I always wanted to do the strategic change and I always thought I had mm -hmm. a good idea or a plan. But underneath it, I think technical people tend to be a little bit more open-minded, a little bit more grounded, I think. Now let's talk about two things. One is on, on your personality, do deep dive a little bit more in that. One is, you said, I used to have a big, a big ego. So how do you get rid of that? How you developed more humbleness and, 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 and get to, because I know that you're into meditation and so on. So did that help? Did that help to get rid of a big ego? It definitely helps. I mean, I don't think there's anything meditation doesn't help with, but I don't, I don't want to sell that here. Um, but yeah, it's helped me personally. It helps it helps see things in a different light. It helps see, mm -hmm. you know, things like everything's connected, right? And I don't mean this in, a, in, in that sort of deep way, but everything is connected, right? All of my actions, they have an impact on someone else. Um, and I've seen this in, in, in people I've worked for and worked with, people who are more mindful of that impact on others and how it all can just snowball just from something you say. And the more senior you get, the, the more it can happen, the more extreme that, that response can be. So uh, meditation definitely helps see things in that light. And I think it helps be more tolerant, right? I'm not saying I was ever like this. I like to think I've always been you know, pretty, pretty good, but it's quite tempting. I mean, you know, imagine if you're driving and you're stuck in traffic and you just get more and more annoyed. And then, you know, imagine it was an accident. And how many times have we gone past 
And not necessarily the immediate response is, um, you know, we don't think, oh my God, those poor people. We do, but we also think, yeah, but they've made me late. You know, that's a terrible thing for them to happen. And so on a smaller scale, you don't know what's going on in people's lives. And COVID, I think, has taught a lot of leaders this because yet yeah, we've increasingly focused on the mental well-being and the mental health of our people. And yep. COVID kind of brought that to light. People with family members who were severely ill or even died. And you just have to always take that into account. That, I think, if you can just keep that in your head, it's very hard to be arrogant. It's very hard for the ego to constantly be pushing forward if you genuinely try and be mindful of other people. So that's, that's my little tip, right? That's worked for okay. me anyway. And how did you get into this, into meditation, into mindfulness? I know that you were very interested in Buddhism as well. How do you, how do you roll into that, that part of the world? So I have always been fascinated by consciousness, right? How? How? Right? I'm pointing to my brain. How? We don't know, right? We still don't know. You know, neuroscience, there's some amazing research going on. We're just peeling back the layers and seeing more and more and more. But, you know, what you've got in your head, all of us, is this incredibly powerful supercomputer beyond, you know, so many orders of magnitude beyond anything we've created with our, with our actual um, computers. And we don't know how it works. And it consumes very little power, about 20 watts. <laughs> so that's always fascinating. I don't know why. Always fascinated me is what's the nature of consciousness. So, you know, I, I read a lot of philosophy. Uh, there's there's, a, there's a, a kind of emerging field of neurophilosophy where you're using neuroscience and computational techniques and applying that, looking at the philosophy, how does it work? But how does this all hang together? Right. So this for me is the big frontier. Right. And you, you've got to have a hobby. And it turns out this is mine. This is how I how I relax. But what, what's interesting to me, and I hadn't fully appreciated this meditation, it's everywhere these days. There's you know, apps and so on you can get. And I kind of got into it that way um, because I hadn't really thought it through. Now that I've read a lot on it and spent time talking to people about it and, and done a lot of it, and most importantly, is you understand that it starts to reflect, for me anyway, reflect information theory. So the things that the Buddha said two and a half thousand years ago, and again, this isn't an advert for Buddhism, um, a lot of that reflects my views on information theory, which of course drive how our industry works and how we work as humans. So I'm just extraordinarily fascinated how all that comes together. And then, and I know I'm going on a bit now, sorry, Hendrik, but you did ask the question. Um, how, in terms of consciousness, with what we're doing around artificial intelligence now, where's the limit? Where are we going with that, right? And we already talk a lot about the ethics of how we do that, and that's an important topic. But for me, artificial intelligence still isn't very intelligent, right? I, I think probably we all know that. It's doing great in some specific domains, but general yeah. purpose, you know, if I speak to Siri on my phone, She's not that smart. I wish she was smarter. Um, but where could it go, right? And yeah, then what, what does that mean? If, what will happen in 40, 50 years when computers will be more powerful than our brains? And so will there be a consciousness inside the computer and questions like that and will become and, very, and, very interesting. And is that where we are now? And of course, that's a difficult one to, 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 to resolve because we, can, we can't save it could be the case. So these questions fascinate me. I like to think in a kind of practical way. Uh, and if you come mm -hmm. back to the meditation, it's a set of tools to train your brain and your mind to work better. That's the way I kind of choose to look at it. You can bring in a lot of things from Buddhism and other areas, but fundamentally, it's a set of tools to make your brain work better. Uh, who, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. Aidan, do, do you have a personal mantra, a saying that helps you, that guides you in your life? If I do, it's everything we do makes us the people we are. Everything. I mean, every single thing. Every thought you have, every interaction you have, which actually kind of comes back, I think, a little bit, to my surprise, to, to, to Buddhism, which I've been reading a bit about lately. But it's inescapable. Everything that's happened, everything that's impacted on us, creates the person we are right now, the person I am here talking to you today. Yeah. And of course, everything we do now creates the person in the future. So you're constantly a work in progress. Um, 
And this is why I like to say to people, especially young people starting that out in their career, do something interesting. Because if you do something that bores you, you'll probably end up being a boring person. Very simple, but if you do interesting things, you'll be an interesting person. So that's my mantra. I hope that makes some kind of sense. The other one I have at work is everyone is digital. We're all doing digital. I mean, it's everyone. It's not an IT thing. It's an everyone thing. There's no IT. There's no business. It's everyone. So that's my work mantra. Okay. <laughs> now, you clearly are a man that, that lives in a very conscious way. You, uh, you, you have studied history. You study philosophy, neuroscience, and, and, and so on. So underneath all that, what are your core values that you live by? What are the things that are really, really important for you? So honesty is a huge thing for me. And of course, who wouldn't say that? But you know, I've, I've worked in envir an environment where leadership wasn't trustworthy. Not here, by the way, absolutely not. Uh, and you can't function in that environment. You just can't do it. You, you, I don't think I could do it in a personal relationship, not that I ever have, you know. Um, but honesty is like the number one thing. I used to say, I had a mantra a few years ago, which is, or if, if, if I only get one thing in a boss, it's honesty. Right? I don't care about the rest, I just want honesty. Um, I do care about lots of other things, but authenticity, you know, being open and authentic, uh, the modern kind of leadership style, that, that, that I think is important, right? I don't want mm -hmm. people constructing any more than they need to, the constructing narratives around themselves or around reality. I want them to just be, just tell it like it is, be authentic. So these, these things are important to me. No. Who, who do you look up to? And, and who are the, maybe the mentors in your life, people that, you, that played an important role in your life? So first I gotta say my wife, because she's smarter than I am. And there isn't a single problem I've ever taken her. Uh, well, I haven't taken them to her, but she, she always comes up with a different perspective. I always think, oh, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I see that? So she's just fantastic. Um, I think back to uh, particularly, but mostly it's every boss I've ever had. I've been really lucky, you know, with mm -hmm. very limited exceptions. I've worked for some fantastic people and I've learned a lot. And I think if my, la my last boss in BP, who was um, regional president for, for the Middle East region I was working in, he had a way, everyone just loved him, everyone, we all did. And I remember watching him, he was great at presenting, he was great at everything, but very relaxed, very undemanding. And I think that was important, right? Because it's very easy in a leadership position to always be asking for things. And there's, there's another mantra I've got, which is, as a leader, it can take me five seconds to ask for something and generate, you know, 500 hours of work for several people in my organization. And I may have forgotten to ask for it, so we've got to be careful. He was really, really good at being undemanding. And particularly what always impressed me and what I learned from him is he always had time for everyone. I mean, everyone. Didn't matter who you were, he would stop. And he wouldn't talk for two minutes. He'd stop for 15, 20 minutes. And I always used to wonder, how on earth does he find the time? I don't, I don't get it. Does he just, well, he obviously worked long hours because senior leaders yep. tend to. But the key thing, the realization, because I worked for him, was he trusts his team. He totally trusts them and gives them the tools and the ability to just do the work. And then he'll occasionally check in with them. But actually, if you trust your team and you've delegated properly and you've built a good team, you do have time. And I think it's really important for leaders to spend as much time as they can coaching and mentoring people. Because for me, there's a, I don't know if I came up with this or I read it somewhere, uh, so I'm not going to try and take credit, but the mark of a great C CIO is 10 years in the future, how many people who worked for them are now CIOs, right? If it's none, that's not a good sign they did a good job. That's an interesting way to look at it. Now, you're clearly very successful in what you do. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't be in this position, uh, Aiden. But we all make our mistakes. So my favorite question of these interviews oh. is, what was your most brilliant failure? And please describe it in, the, in a beautiful way. <laughs> and so I, I knew this question was coming, thankfully, because if I didn't, I'd be like, oh, what? So uh, the one I'm going to use is, 
I, in the 1990s, I went to work for a big consultancy. I won't name which one. Um, and I hated it. I didn't like it at all because I was just dropped in for a week here and a few days there and a month there to different companies. And, you know, I was in my 20s. And, and I resented the fact that I was expected, you know, I was being sold for a lot of money. How, how you know, I'm, I'm inexperienced. I'm in my 20s. I'm young. What can I tell someone who's been doing this job for 30 years? Yeah, you can resort to frameworks and all of the great stuff, but it just felt fraudulent to me and I didn't feel <laughs> like it was for me. I didn't enjoy it. You know, there was one part I was sold into a, a finance house and um, I literally remember sitting there thinking, if anything goes wrong, I'm just going to run out the door. And I even planned my route out the door. So I'm, I'm out of here. So that was not successful, right? And I, I did it for about a year. Uh, and the lesson I learned from that uh, and there are actually two lessons, but the, the, the second one took a long time to come. The first one was, I don't like being on the outside. I don't mm. want to be parachuted into a company. I want to work for the company. And I always have done ever since, because then I can live and breathe the business challenges. I can be there with the people who've got the problems, genuinely spend time understanding it. That way, I'm going to deliver more value, right? So that was the lesson I learned from that. And, and that's what I've done ever since. And actually, that kind of revolutionized my career because at that young age, I didn't really know where I was going. But then I had that fixed in my head. I'm going to work in the enterprise and I'm going to only take roles where I can do something that brings some meaningful change. The second thing I learned from that years later was I just didn't know enough. For me, and it comes back to, I think, the authenticity, it just wouldn't work for me. I can't pretend I know something um, and try and lecture something someone on it, um, it wouldn't work. But if I've got the experience, which of course I now do, fine. And to me, that's great. Be a consultant yeah. when, you've actually when you've actually walked the walk, when you've done the job. So that, that, was, that was my most brilliant failure. And it didn't feel good. I hated it at the time. I just hated it. Didn't like it at all. Long time ago now. Now it's clear from, from this interview that there's many things that you love. You love history, you love philosophy, you love big challenges and large uh, corporates where you can have uh, a, a big impact. You love your, your wife. I mean, that's... But Don't forget my dog. You... I love my dog, Hendrik. <laughs> <laughs> but what is it that you fear? Is, are the, you have important fears in your life that are... What is it that you fear most? The thing I think I fear most at the moment is there's a sense of momentum Right, and mm -hmm. I'm a historian. So if you look back over the last 10, 15,000 years, right, the story of human civilization, mm -hmm. it's just been getting better and better and better and better. And even though it's easy to focus on all the, the negatives, I mean, nothing's perfect. You know, Steven Pinker wrote a book, um, Better Angels of Ourselves, I think it was called. Anyway, he wrote a book which, which showed the data and said, yeah, you complain about crime, yeah, you complain about this. It's better now than it's ever been. This is about 10 years ago. And it still is. For more yeah. people, it is better than it's ever been. My fear is we're getting to a point of complexity, right? You know, no business, no big business is fully understandable by an individual person. No piece of technology, big piece of technology, is fully understandable by a single person. Our societies are complex, right? We're struggling with disinformation and misinformation. Social media is... I, don't go near it, but social media is difficult um, to deal with. And I just worry that all that progress may slow and halt. We've got big problems with climate change. We need to, you know, we need to, we need to keep up the momentum. And we need as humans to keep working together to make sure we sustain our civilization, solve our problems, and live in some kind of harmony. So that's it, right? I don't know. What the, rea what the reality of that fear coming to fruition is, you know, we always solve our problems. That's what he, us yeah. humans do. We solve them. We might create more at the same time. We always have done historically. I just want to be sure we keep doing that, right? Because it's a great world. People are great. We, you know, look at it. It's fantastic for a lot of us. Um, we need to keep improving that. So, Aidan, these interviews are being watched by young, dynamic, ambitious uh, professionals that also want to become 
successful CIOs in large organizations. So with your background, with your experience, with your vision and strategy, what would your advice be to these ambitious professionals? So I, 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 I love trying to distill this down, but there's mm -hmm. a few things which I have noticed in myself and in others who've gone on to do pretty well. The first thing is, you're working at a company, always put your hand up, always volunteer, right? Because leaders like me, we're always asking for some special project or something, or someone to say something. Yeah, we're doing a town hall and we're just desperate that someone asks a question. Because if I talk for 20 minutes and then say any questions in front of hundreds of people, no one comes up with anything, that's embarrassing. So we want people to put their hands up. It gets you noticed and it gets you something interesting to do. So. And the tendency for most of us, and I was like this when I was younger, is, oh, I wouldn't know what to say. I might say something stupid. I don't want to risk it. Just put your hand up. The second thing I would say is make sure as much as you can that what you're doing is interesting and enjoyable. You may not have that much influence or control over it, but you'd be surprised and try and choose things as much as you can that are interesting. And I think there's a third point, which is, you may look at people like me and, and think, ah, oh, but it's, it's all right for you, you're confident and all of that. That all comes with experience. Don't think everyone starts out this way, right? If you could rewind, if there was a video of me in the 1990s, uh, I didn't feel that confident. I felt like I didn't know anything. I was constantly in meetings where I didn't know what they were talking about, but gradually it comes, right? Confidence comes from doing things and from experience. Stay focused on that. Don't worry about running before you can walk. Just, you will get there. Okay. And on that note, Aidan, thank you so much for your time, for your insights. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to meeting you soon in London and have a, have a good beer together. Uh, or I'll come to Belgium. That would be good as well, Hendrik. And then we even have better beer over here. You, you do. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> thank you so much. See you soon. Thanks, Hendrik. See you soon. Bye-bye.